0: plushcare.com slash weight loss
1: in a sudden flash it all comes clear it's a eureka moment an epiphany hi i'm marcus smith host of the constant wonder podcast the world offers marvel meaning and mystery around every single corner in nature art science culture history we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day.
2: Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome
3: to History Hacks, first installment of Down the Pub. Um, I hope you're excited. I am excited, but I'm quite terrified as well because there's currently a conference full of people. Um, we've all got alcohol um, and we're all ready to have like a pub style debate um, Just to entertain you really on a Friday evening So uh, we're actually recording this on Thursday Because we were a bit scared of doing it live the first week So uh, the premise of this week's show is Every week we're going to give you a a really broad question And there's going to be a debate And this week's question is What is the greatest ship ever built? And the reason for this is because Alina, who's here Say hello Alina Hello everyone (laughs) and Andrew Holmes my co-author partner in crime um, on several books is here say hello Holmes good evening Holmes is on his third beer already and he's got more lined up. Um, basically, they're being punished. They were really snooty about naval history on the social media this week. Um, they they scoffed at the difference between a boat and a ship um, and, and they deserve to be punished. So I decided that the first one we were going to do um, was going to be all about boats, ships, naval history, and that I was going to bring in as many people who love talking about waterborne things that float as i could and bore the living daylights out of them um and what we've done so right this is what we're going to do is these these two are going to judge so what it means is that they have to sit and diligently listen to absolutely everything that's going on for the entire of this show which is going to be longer than one of our normal interviews um and then they have to make an informed decision at the end alina's actually on the video sticking her fingers up at me right now that's how much she hates this idea um and the prize is um, we don't have a name for our virtual pub yet We will name the virtual pub After the ship that wins that, That's what you're gunning for here guys <laughs> um, So uh, say hello everybody We've got uh, a dozen people in here Just just say a brief hi Hello
1: Hi
0: hello. Hi. hi there oh.
3: We have people from actually all across the globe with us. It's going to be fantastic. So what we're going to do first of all, we didn't just want to uh, interview experts and authors for this segment. We wanted to invite some of you guys that listen to us all week long um, to come on and contribute as well. So we're going to do this first. We're going to go in with two people uh, that have come to join us to argue for their favorite ships. Um, I'm going to start with William. Hi, William. Hello. William, you're a teaching assistant, aren't you? And you're originally from London, but you're currently in Derbyshire.
4: Yep, that's right.
3: Uh, are you currently still going in? Are you one of these people that has to go in and uh, teach the skilled people's children?
4: Yeah, um, I'm doing one day a week at the moment. Just all the, all the staff are doing a shift. So one day a week for two children.
3: <laughs> so is this a little bit of respite for you at the end of a, of a long week then?
4: Uh. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's just been a bit surreal, really, so, um, you know, just taking things carefully and just uh, making the most of the free time that I get, really.
3: By joining us, poor you. <laughs> right, okay. <laughs> so, um, right, you you name your ship, and what I'm going to ask you to do, I'm going to give you uh, time to state the name of your ship and tell Andrew and Alina why your ship is the greatest ship that was ever built.
4: Okay, I chose uh, the Santa Maria, uh, which was Christopher Columbus's flagship. Um, I could have chosen the, the two others, La Nina or La Pinta, um, but I chose this ship because of the... Not because it, it was a great ship in itself, but because of uh, what it led to, really. And obviously, it led to the discovery of the New World um, and everything that entailed... Um, the death of millions of Native Americans, whatever you want to call them, um, through disease and warfare, um, and also the the effect that the, the voyage and the discovery had on sort of all the continents um, in the world, obviously, uh, led to the discovery of the new world. Um, it had an impact on Europe as well in terms of the money flooding back to Spain, uh, which led to to their rise as a, as a European and world power, uh, the discoveries that it brought back um, in terms of animals, new plants, things like that. Um, and also, obviously, a big one was um, slavery, really, uh, the effect that had on Africa. I mean, slavery had always been going on, but, um, you know, the, the, the colonisation of the Caribbean and... Uh, so, yeah, South America, the Southern States of America, and the impact that had um, on Africans uh, was obviously massive. Um, so that, that was really the, the reason I chose the Santa Maria, not, not in effect because the ship was particularly remarkable, but the effect that that had on, on the rest of the world.
3: Uh, do you know what this is one thing that's really good about this is because we didn't actually specify in which way great and everybody on here today has taken a slightly different view of what makes a great ship and why they're making an argument I actually laughing in my head off watching the video feeds because right now they could the two judges couldn't be more different Holmes is sitting there looking diligent he's making notes um, Alina I have never seen look more miserable in my life she's sitting there with a face like a smacked ass and it makes me feel low, warm and fuzzy inside because she. Deserved it, basically, after what she said to, uh, this week. Uh, Alina, are you still awake?
5: I am, but unfortunately, while we're doing this recording, I'm having a bit of trouble with the police, so uh, <laughs> I am listening, I promise, I promise, I promise I'm listening, but I'm also expecting the police to turn up at my door in the next five minutes, so Alina, do you bear with have... me.
6: Alina, you might want to put a bit of context in with that, to be honest. Uh,
5: so, uh, <laughs> for those of you who don't know, uh, I'm under mandatory quarantine courtesy of the Polish government and we have an application where you have to take a selfie and it logs your location and it's not working and yeah, um, yeah, we'll see, we'll see what happens. I'll let you know throughout the podcast.
3: <laughs> Excellent. If um, you, either of you two guys, as our judges, have you got any questions about the Santa Maria?
6: No, I mean, I didn't know the name of the ship, um, but the circumstances are fairly familiar. I mean, um, are we supposed to be deciding the ship on the merits of, like, an engineering construction, however it was, or its impact?
3: We gave everybody a li- an open licence to decide what the criteria for great was, so I think it's only fair we should give you to an open licence, so you're not under any restrictions. <laughs> Which Whichever argument really you you buy into the most by the end of it.
6: William gave a really good, succinct description. Um but most of the things that he highlighted were quite negative, and my history at uh, that period is not great. But wasn't Columbus going the wrong way in the first place anyway?
4: Yeah, he, he thought he was going to India. So uh, yeah. but that wasn't that wasn't the ship's fault, was it?
6: No, it, it, no, that's true. That's true. But uh, um, no, I, Alina, have you? Can you think of anything?
5: What, why are you putting me on the spot? because you're no, supposed to
3: be paying attention All Right, i get <laughs> william thank you hang around because uh, we're going to um, bring you back in uh, half sort of just a third of the way through after our enthusiasts and our our uh, like twitter guests have had their say and we'll we'll do like a midway point of who's winning uh, next up we've got andrew uh, andrew can you hear us yes uh, hello oh, you had a bit of problem hello signing there. in andrew is yeah. uh, from you're coming to us from bristol uh, where you work in retail. Yeah. Um, but you actually, you're arguing for an American ship, aren't you? So um, oh, as yeah. succinctly as you can, tell Andrew and Alina, shocking philistines that they are, why your ship is the greatest ship ever built.
7: Why am I getting two fingers stuck up at me?
3: Uh, because, <laughs> because Alina doesn't want to that be doing this. You. That was Alex. <laughs> apologies. <laughs>
7: I'm going to go for the USS Enterprise. Now, not what you lot are probably thinking right now, but the World War II aircraft carrier.
3: Alina got really excited then, because she thought you were talking about Star Trek.
7: Yeah. No, but you will like this because, if I can keep my iPad stable, Um, it's the CVN-6. Is It's designated number and a couple of interesting facts or you know about Star Trek if you want to talk about Star Trek. <laughs> Gene Romery picked it because he was impressed with its, um, its battle record. It's the most highly decorated ship ever in World War II. It's got 20 battle promotions or battle stars or um, they got different different things they call it the americans would call it something we'd call it something different everybody else would call it something else and I'm also sorry, how,
6: how do you win a battle star if you're a ship
7: but I, I don't have no knowledge of this <laughs> they give hang on i knew somebody would ask this so i wrote it down
3: oh this is brilliant um, go hang on, on.
7: <laughs> right it's got um where are we yeah, they get awarded battle stars, okay? Why is she laughing?
3: Because she has no idea what you're talking about. That's okay. That's why she's being punished.
7: Okay. Each battle they took place in, they either get a citation or they get a star. So it's like getting a gold star for being good at um, history, you know, homework or something like that. They get a star allocated to them. It got 20. So it's either... 20 gold stars, 20 battle stars, 20 um, whatever you want to call them. But that's that's what they technically got. But
6: but do it's you, the only do you have, ship.
7: Sorry. Do, you have
6: to, do you have to do anything good? With my first war background, I'm thinking sort of, you know, uh, DSC, uh, DSC, military medal, military cross, VC. Are there distinctions of things that you have to do to get uh, a, a, a battle star?
7: Yeah, survive. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Each... I think it's important Each... for,
6: the, for the record, It's important. so you could be in a battle, not actually fire a shot, but not get hit and still get a battle star?
7: No, technically, it'd be the same as if you'd get termed as a veteran. If you get a shot fired near you or you fire a shot, you're termed as a veteran. So you oh, actually a general got... General
6: service, a general service medal in that
7: case. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But did the they only...
6: actually pin the stars to the
7: funnel or anything like that? Um, it <laughs> was in, yeah, they, they have a, an area Where they actually put it on But I couldn't tell you where Usually on the
3: Conning
1: Tower
3: oh, this is one of our experts coming in. Yeah. yeah. So, so essentially, Andrew What you're saying is That this ship deserves to be On the list of the great or Deserves to be crowned The greatest ship ever built Because of its uh, uh, record of service In World War II And that no other ship matches it
7: Correct Awesome.
6: Andrew, where did it serve?
7: Sorry? Where, where did it serve? Where did it serve? Uh, it served the, the, the entire Pacific Theatre, basically. Um, it was... It's initial one, it was out, out from Pearl Harbour when it was attacked on the 7th of December. Um, it took Marines and Hellcats to Wake Island. It's gone to Midway which was obviously the most pivotal battle of the Pacific. Um, you've got Guadalcanal, another one. Uh, you've got the Leyte Gulf battle, and you've also got the um, Philippine Islands as well. But it I- went a considerable amount of different distance. It's the only um, aircraft carrier that survived to the end of the war. It was in, only in service in, for ten years, from nineteen thirty-six to forty-six.
3: Okay, right. I'm gonna. So, uh, guys, have you got any more questions, Holmes? I can't help a feeling that you weren't taking you. There was a little bit of glibness there about the idea of pinning a battle star to a funnel, um, and that you weren't taking her record of service seriously.
6: I, I think it's a pertinent question. Okay.
3: <laughs> it is. Right okay I'm gonna I'm throwing one at you from completely from left field now our our last Twitter guest who's with us today is uh, um, from Birmingham oh he's in Birmingham at the moment he's an archaeology graduate budding archaeologist James and he has got uh, a bit of a surprise to nominate Um, he wanted to challenge himself but I feel he's going to challenge your interpretation of a great ship as well James what ship have you gone for?
8: I've gone for the RMS Titanic. So it'll be well known to the public, of course. And I'm a bit nervous now because there's a Titanic and Olympic expert in the chat. So it's <laughs> going to be a real big challenge for me. But when I interpreted Greatest Ship in History, I didn't look at how it was built. I also looked at its impact at the time, before and after its maiden voyage, its impact on media, history, law, and also the inspiration it gave for many people in the field, like the experts, the careers it launched, the, co- the companies it launched, basically, as well. So it was also, media-wise, to cheer Alina up, the <laughs> second Titanic movie I know of is actually German. It was German propaganda by Goebbels during World War Two, with the hero of the hour being a German that never existed, basically. So to cheer Alina up. There you go. There's something to do with that, James. It, you
3: you definitely deserve a battle star nailed to your funnel for making her smile during this and actually uh, giving her something that made her look marginally interested in the conversation. Well done.
8: Yeah, but it's obviously say she was the. I think
5: James is winning right now. <laughs>
8: <laughs> I knew that was coming, but yeah, it's um. I've broken this all down to a really long argument, but um. It was the culmination of Victorian Edwardian Edwardian shipbuilding. It was a precursor to the the cruise ships we see now, effectively. It was effectively an arms race between White Star and Cunard, Britain and America, which is ironic, considering both companies are owned by the same American company now. But, well, Cunard is. But, um, yeah, it's just, there was all media hype. The inspiration it's given to careers like David Mears, for example he stated in his own autobiography that led to his career which obviously led to the finding of the Lucona the Derbyshire the Comoran HMAS Sydney a lot of discoveries and advances in maritime archaeology all come down to the Titanic and there's still questions to be answered they still go down to test new technology test theories the Technology we thought Or the interpretations of her tech We thought we had at the time That's always changing Obviously we know the steel was poorer We know the fire in the coal bunker Could have had an effect on her sinking In the interpretation of the wireless room And technology for example I know in the movie They believed it was more like the Olympics But since then they found it was completely different just the, the media hype then, the media hype now, everyone's going to watch the movie, know the ship, know it's built, and it's just going to inspire people for years to come. So in my opinion, it is the greatest ship in the world because the impact it's had recently on the world and will continue to do so.
3: I really like what you've done there because you've uh, taken a ship that no one else would have dared take on um because brian have, have you got a rebuttal to this as the as the guy who wrote a book about rms olympic have you, her sister ship have you got a rebuttal
1: well i mean i did almost pick uh olympic or titanic i i feel like they were amazing vessels they were certainly evolutionary revolutionary uh, Some ships have it, whatever it is, that special quality, and Titanic certainly has it. Uh, it, It's changed my life. Uh, I make a living selling ocean liner memorabilia because of my fascination with Titanic. So I can see the argument for sure. It's just not the ship I'm going to pick today.
3: (laughs) Uh, Holmes and Alina, have you got any questions?
6: I I don't have any particular questions. Obviously, the Titanic is far well... Um, far you know more well known than this i think the elephant in the room is that really was it a great ship that you know
3: you mean because it uh, what and what everyone is trying to avoid is the fact that everyone died and it's sitting on the bottom of the atlantic ocean that's what you're skirting around isn't it
6: yes that would be a, a slightly unusual um definition of the word great ultimately i think <laughs> but you know he made this case well i quite like that you know I, I take on board what he said about advances in underwater archaeology and things like that which is quite interesting.
3: I, I really like I, I, even if I, I don't agree um, I'd actually mine which I'm not going to argue because there's far more intelligent people than me here doing boat arguing but I'm, I'm going dreadnought but um, James well done because you actually picked uh, bonkers uh, what sounded bonkers um, and actually constructed a really good argument out of it um, so that's our Twitter um, followers. Uh, Holmes where are you at the moment? Who's winning? What's the name of the pub um, so far?
6: Uh, do you know, I haven't obviously coordinated with my co-judge on this.
3: Um, I'm just, I'm just checking the video feed to see if your co-judge is still even there or if she's just gone to bed. No, she's there. She's okay, alright.
6: She could, have, she could have been carted off if that app didn't work as well. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> um, I, I have to say I'm not sold on any of them so far and I, I don't know I'm, I'm sort of treating the word great in its normal literal sense with my lawyer head on because that's what I do during the day. Um, um, the Columbus one I kind of get but there's an awful lot of negatives associated with that other than the fact it you know it did get there and discover the new world but there were lots of quite negative consequences in the short term. Um the USS Enterprise, I really struggle. Alex, you know I have a mental block when it comes to the Second World War in the Pacific. <laughs> there's, nothing, <laughs> there's nothing that I can do to um, try and overwrite that. And I, I like the fact that it, um, it sounded like it was all worthy and everyone was very brave on it and stuff like that. And, and I get that, but I'm not particularly sold on it at the moment. And the Titanic, um, it's very well known, as we all know and I like the points that James made about archaeology and developments and things like that, but if we're talking great, um, I'm doing inverted commas with my fingers, um, there is an issue around its greatness, shall we say.
3: Alina, are you just going to go with Titanic because he mentioned Goebbels and stuff that's slightly related to your research?
5: Right, so I can't be, um, <clears throat> and both Andrew and James follow me, so I kind of feel really bad <laughs> that, you know, so I'm trying to be really diplomatic here but but James is
3: Just say I'm what's really on your sorry. mind. You're going Andrew, she's I'm going, going so with Titanic. Sorry. <sighs> You're so fakey, You've you've got to learn to own your decisions. Stop stop pulling sad faces at him. Sad puppy dog faces that he doesn't hate you. He hates you now. Yeah. Okay. Right. So guys from Twitter, thank you so much for coming on and giving us your arguments. Um, Personally, at the moment, uh, for greatest impact, I'm leaning towards if I was if I hadn't already made up my own mind, which is going to change with every expert we talk to because I'm fickle. But at the moment, I'm still going dreadnought, but I, I really did like the uh, the case for the Santa Maria because of the shit impact that she had. Um, so let's see where we go from here. I'm going to amp it up now. Thanks very much, guys. Um, we're going to say goodbye to you, um, but thank you and good night. Yeah. So this is kind of part two now. Moving on because I have just to punish you even more because as if boat enthusiasm wasn't like bad enough for you two i I've found people who write books on them who spend their whole lives working with them and are obsessed with them to torture you a little bit more um i kind of want to bring in first um because we've just had this conversation about the titanic i kind of want to bring in uh i i brought my my old school boat posse with me to really torture you two Um, So I'm going to start with Inga and do you know what Inga you are a credit to your race It is (laughs) 6.52 in the morning in Sydney and not only has she got a martini She's got a cocktail shaker, she's drunk the martini, the glass is empty I can see She's got a cocktail shaker with more martini in it You are a credit to the Australian people (laughs) Inga is a project manager at the Australian National Maritime Museum uh, as well as being slightly drunk, she has written uh, a book called Titanic Valor, which is um, about the fifth officer. Um, for you two, that's the fit Welsh one in the lifeboat that rescues Kate Winslet. You with me?
6: I've not seen it for years. <laughs> the only officer I remember is the one who says, Stan Macker, I'll shoot you all like dogs. Is it him or is it another one?
2: No, that's Lytolla. <laughs> who <laughs> I have who to actually say. did fire his gun. But yeah. Right, okay. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Do you know what, though, um, as both Inga and, and Brian, who's already uh, chimed in with his Olympic Titanic knowledge, will tell you, if anybody said that line, it would have been the real Charles Lightoller because he was a, a piece of work. Inga, tell, tell Holmes what he did at Dunkirk.
2: He took a, um, his own private yacht, the Sundowner, he was involved in the little ship's rescue and uh, he packed it so full that they were down to the rafters um, underneath and below decks and uh, they counted them as they came off, obviously, as he landed them. And then uh, they said, well, is that all? And he said, oh, no. And then they started appearing as if they were, you know, coming out of the bottomless clown car. All the troops that were below decks started coming out. I mean, possibly apocryphal story about one crewman who, um, when he found out that their captain, their skipper, was uh, <laughs> was the second officer on the Titanic, wanted to bail there and then. But uh, <laughs> one of his uh, mates you know, got us through the Titanic. If he came through the Titanic, he's going to get us through this. That's a good
3: point. But you're not going to argue uh, for the Titanic, are you?
2: I'm not. I was very impressed with James's arguments, though. I think he made a lot of valid points. Um, but uh, no, no, I'm. Um, <laughs> I really found it very difficult. I mean, I've, I have family. I'm. I'm arguing more for the liners from the great golden age of liners, and um, that in itself is a difficult decision. Of course, I'm an Art Deco fan, so you know
0: Normandy
2: is um, when you talk about interior decor. My mother did uh, the. She was a passenger on the final voyage of the Queen Mary. So, aside from all the other arguments for the Queen Mary, both in war and peace. Um, you know, Queen Mary will always um, have a special place in my heart. And um, I was at the launch of the Oriana. So uh, there's so many great liners in the golden age of, um, of ocean liner travel. Um, and in particular, I'm more pre-cruise ships. I'm very much liners in the age when they were a means of mass transport. And so I've gone... <laughs> There were so many to choose from and there were so many arguments to be made around technological advances. You look at, for example, the Lusitania and the Mauritania and how they advanced. I mean, they were truly revolutionary in terms of time technology. So I've gone more for a very sentimental choice um, and one that, for me, epitomises that transitional period between, you know, the 19th century when uh, long Atlantic voyages or long liner voyages were pretty grim um, going all the way back to the coffin ships of the um, last days of sailing and uh, mass migration from places like Ireland to places like America and Australia, to when we transitioned into liner uh, travelling being much more comfortable and fast and efficient and, and done with a bit of style. And so my choice is the Oceanic, the second Oceanic of that name from the White Star Line.
3: Do you know what? I knew you were going to say that. Do you know why? Because (laughs) is she not the ship where any of the, there are quite a few Titanic officers, but other merchant officers (laughs) and wireless operators, you asked them and they served on all the ships you've mentioned. But if you ask them their favorite ship, they always say Oceanic 2. So tell everyone why she's awesome.
2: You're quite right there. You're quite right there. Um, a lot of um, uh, White Star Line officers uh, and wireless operators did serve on Oceanic too. She was, well, she was a standalone. You look, for example, before that, you've got, um, you know, two great, the Teutonic and the Majestic, which were the previous generation of White Star Liners. And then, of course, after that, you've got the big four, um, Baltic, Adriatic, et cetera. Um, Oceanic almost alone um, and she was the first liner to exceed the uh, Great Eastern in length if not in tonnage um, and also she I think she strikes a very fine balance she um, epitomizes uh, she epitomizes the idea that the white star line had she was never built to compete with the real greyhounds of the Atlantic which were run by the Cunard line and by um, uh, by the German lines um, she, White Star had made the calculations and they realised that, of course, when you balance up how much um, uh, storage you needed, stowage you needed for coal and, you know, um, how much um, uh, machinery you needed to really compete, they decided, no, they were going to do timely crossings uh, in style, in comfort. And that was what their point of difference was for sales. And, after this, you start to get, I mean, really, I mean, much as I love the Olympic class, in a sense, they are just scaled-up versions of the Oceanic. Um, uh, they rejected some of the new technology that was coming in with the Lusitania and the Mauritania, and they just said, well, we're just going to do bigger, you know, triple-expanding um, uh, engines. Um, also, you look at some of the, and, and this is something that I know, this this may sound incredibly shallow when we're talking about, you know, um, uh, uh, destroyers and aircraft carriers and, you know, this is like this, but I've got to say um, I also have a passion for um, interior decor and after Oceanic, we're looking at the Beaux Arts period and a lot of what we see with some of the liners that were built, it was more about excess, it was uh, a Titanic itself, you know, we, we look at the luxurious interiors and so many of them, are, <laughs> it's almost like a theme park, you know, Louis Couture's you know and then we've got and it was different styles um and you've got almost a mishmash whereas Oceanic is coherent and in fact you listen to some of the (laughs) is uh, that your clock
1: that is my clock can we just
2: tell
3: people that that is Inga's clock striking 7am I'm so proud hey I'll
2: tell you it is a vintage grandmother clock that is hanging on the wall.
3: <laughs> it would be awesome if you said you bought it at a collection and it was from the Oceanic 2, but I suspect that's not the case.
2: I should have said that. Well, you know, after the Oceanic 2 met its very um, unfortunate fate, it, it spent, I mean, and the Oceanic, in some ways, the Oceanic's end sort of epitomises the tragic end of this period in Edwardian um, uh, liner history, and it almost has a larger significance. Um uh, it was sent into service in 1914 because, of course, there were arrangements with the Admiralty that these liners, and you see, for example, you know, the, uh, the Olympic and the Britannic service, of course, you see the Lusitania, uh, well, Lusitania didn't and met a different tragic end, but, you know, you see the other Cunard liners that were converted to use as troop ships and so on. Uh, uh, Oceanic was used to patrol the Shetlands and it was a purpose for which it was manifestly unfit. Uh, liners are meant to... Across an ocean. They're not meant to maneuver in shallow shoals and reefs and unfortunately that's what they exactly what they deployed um, oceanic to do to patrol the Shetlands and lasted two weeks ran aground and um, unfortunately sank and you know there are still people up there in the Shetlands today that have beautiful pieces of panelling that were salvaged from oceanic.
3: So what you're saying is essentially guys, what Inga's saying is she could have gone big and Larry and gone for like the Olympic, but what she's done is go for vintage charm and a real gem in, in the history of those, like uh, the, the golden era of Atlantic crossing. Um, so have you got any questions for Inga?
6: Yeah, I, I've got uh, one at least, which is, I mean, Inga, <laughs> you, you spoke about the, 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 sense the-, sense the- and how, how stunning it was and how well designed it was. But, was it also taking, for want of a better expression, lower-class passengers? So was it used for... Yes, well, immigration? no, that's...
2: The the um, third class, the immigrants, were really the bread and butter of the uh, transatlantic trade at this time. So you look at it and you've got, you know, I think it was 420 first-class births. You had 300 second-class births because we're just starting to see the emergence of... Not only what we call the middling class of people, you know, your doctors, your lawyers, your teachers, they're starting to um, look at migration as well, but also they're starting to be tourists. They're starting, tourist class as as such does not yet exist. It will emerge from second class and people are travelling. But to those numbers, um, you've got a 1,000 berths that were dedicated to steerage passengers. Um, A lot of people came to America on the oceanic. She carried, I think, uh, in her very brief 15-year, unfortunately, truncated career, she carried about 300,000 passengers. Um, hey, thanks. Well,
6: I'm, I'm quite intrigued by that. And um, I was saying to Alex earlier, despite my um, technically lack of interest in the subject, a lot of my ancestors worked on boats. But my great-great-grandfather was ships. the captain of the SS Simla. <laughs> yeah, ships. Yeah. <laughs> My great great grandfather was a captain of the SS Shimla, which I believe—and this may be wrong—but I believe that you know it was a similar type of operation. In he died when he was captain in 1871, but I believe it went between the UK and India, and then went round the sort of Pacific around around there. And then my other great grandfather at the time um, was a tugboat captain on the Thames, but he used to nick stuff right, left, and centre, so we can probably ignore him from conversation <laughs> at the moment. But That's quite intriguing. And my own grandfather came over here in 1928 on a similar ship to the Olympic. Um, So to some way, um, Alina, I don't know what you think, but I think the fact that you're you're telling me it's really well designed, but it also had sort of like a social element of good as well. I mean, I'm quite intrigued to know how how it ended up being sunk, to be honest, with my personal warhead on.
2: Uh, there was a miscalculation by the navigating officer who, wait for it, was originally originally posted to Titanic but was moved at the last minute. It's David Blair. This is the Um, one that
3: took the key to the binocular cabinet, isn't it?
2: Yeah, that's a separate argument. Um, To be honest, though, I would not blame Blair. Um, It was really, the vessel was not put to a purpose for which it was fit. It should have been a a troop transport. It should not have been... Liners are not made to, you know, navigate around um, narrow passages and shallow waters. That's not where they... They're they're meant to... You put them in the open ocean and they go from point A to point B. You know, it was a very, um, very inadequate use of a resource... Um, and what's more, he was massively sleep-deprived and there was also confusion in the chain of command between the two commanders that were on board, the captain and the commander. Um, So I don't think we can blame David Blair. He's not the Jonah. (laughs) Um, And, in fact, he went on to be... um, He'd been already decorated for heroism in other areas and went on to have a very, very good career. But, uh, yeah, I think it was just, unfortunately, it was the beginning of the war. Um, I don't think that they had really thought through what these vessels... Best use was. So it was really through no fault of the Oceanic and through very little fault of her crew.
6: It's a good job you've clarified that because otherwise, questions will be asked about the sort of psychometric testing that the White Star line used to use during (laughs) their interview process.
3: (laughs) <laughs> in, that's awesome <laughs> Pour yourself another drink But don't go anywhere Hang with us um, I'm going to stick with um, the ocean line Because we, we've got military as well We are going to go on some military ships And uh, one of uh, my all time I think the, where my heart lies we, we have an awesome guest with us He's going to talk about a ship That I'm completely in love with But um, let, let's stick with ocean liner history Because we have Brian with us uh, Who is a, is a great chum of mine And Inga's from back in the day Brian's coming to us from Winston-Salem Which is about to be locked down um, He has has been involved in black marketeering in toilet roll in the last 24 hours. Um, he is in, he's the author of a number of books on a number of historic liners, including the Olympic. Um, I think if he had his own way, he'd argue for the coronia, but he's not going to. Um, but he lectures on board uh, Cunard liners now, actually, on ocean liner history for the passengers. Um, and, and he really is a, a solid expert on this, this ethos of uh, transatlantic liners. Um, in the in the opening years of the 20th century uh brian you've got an awesome list that uh actually it was a a world war one uh aviation pioneer wasn't it um that came up with them but uh this is the kind of um the kind of lifestyle people were living on these liners give us the list of how you were supposed to conduct yourself
1: sure this was written in may of 1922 on a famous Cunarder, the aquitania which was kind of a shameless copy of the Olympic and Titanic, uh, but she didn't sing. Uh The Aquitania uh, was one of the most famous ships at the time and took the cream of the first class traffic. So this uh, aviation pioneer was named Claude Graham White, and he was giving a, a first-time voyager a bit of advice about how to behave on board. And he said that um, the... Uh, Let's see here. Yes. It only show-offs drink more than one bottle of champagne at breakfast. Uh, The most costly cognac on the wine list isn't always the best. You shouldn't ask for Maine lobster on an east-west passage or English-channel soul going west to east. You should tip the carver at your table no more than three pence. And you should never get in fistfights with Frenchmen, which is degrading. You should strike them with your walking stick instead. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs>
3: oh, Holmes is in love with this guy already.
1: Yeah, a hundred years ago, uh, uh, what, uh, how things changed. There wasn't a lot to do on board either.
3: Yeah. so that changing. You, uh, um, We've already heard mention of this ship, and uh, th- this ship uh, gets a lot of love, and for very good reasons. But tell us, uh, t- or tell our judges, what is your greatest ever ship?
1: When I was a little boy and first became interested in ocean liners due to the discovery of Titanic Uh, and at that time there was no Google or internet so I went to an encyclopedia which most kids probably now have never even seen one and if you looked up ocean liners then the very definition of an ocean liner was literally the RMS Queen Mary of 1936. There's something about Mary. You can still visit her in Long Beach She's got a long and happy and prosperous and profitable career. She made a thousand and one crossings in her 31 years at sea. She carried millions of passengers. She was Winston Churchill's favorite ship. In fact, he credited her and her sister ship, the Queen Elizabeth, by shortening the war uh, for a year. They carried so many troops, including my grandfather, over to fight in France in 1944. They ended up, in fact, the Mary still has the record for the largest number of people ever to be placed on any vessel at all, uh, 16,000 and change. So many people were placed on board for these troop crossings that they had to stand stock still because if you ran over to the side to look at the Statue of Liberty, they didn't think they'd tip the ship over but they thought she'd get so deep in the water she'd nick the Lincoln Tunnel uh, in New York's Harbor. Uh, She just was everywhere, she did everything. Adolf Hitler offered a $250,000 reward to any submarine captain who could sink her plus the Iron Cross with oak leaves. But she didn't even need uh, much of a destroyer escort screen because she was the fastest ship in the world and could go at 32 knots. And when you combine this with zigzagging where she randomly changed course, Uh, it made it almost impossible to target her for for a torpedo. Then after the war, she carried hundreds of thousands of British war brides who had married American servicemen back to start new lives in the United States. You could write an entire multi-volume history on her great and successful war work, or the fact that she was an Art Deco icon and beautiful and is still one of the only, if not the only true ocean liner that you can still tour today, although I suspect in the age of the virus, I believe she is closed right now. But going on her today, you can still feel something about her. I I pat the hull when I walk on board. There's just something about the ship. She's amazing. Uh, In fact, she had a poem written uh, by England's uh, poet laureate, John Maysfield. Uh, And he said, she's a rampart of a ship, long as a street and lofty as a tower, ready to glide and thunder from the slip and shear the seas with majesty of power. I long to see you leaping to the urge of the great engines rolling as you go, parting the seas in sunder in a surge and shredding a trackway like a mile of snow. Uh, She's the kind of ship you can write poetry about. There's just something special about the Queen Mary. And even if you don't choose the Queen Mary as the name of your virtual pub, everyone should go visit her. Your life will be measurably improved just for for getting to see what she's like.
3: I've never heard that poem before. That is awesome. Um, Holmes, oh, that's really got, a tiny bit of it. That, Yeah. I, when you say Macefield, I was surprised it was so short. It's probably like 800 <laughs> verses long. Is he not the guy that wrote the, the descriptions of Gallipoli and the Somme battlefields and they go on and on and on and oh, on. Oh,
1: and on one on other that. kind of humorous story, because there's so many Queen Mary anecdotes I could go on for hours about her. Uh, I don't know if this story is true, but it's a particularly good one. When, Cunard and the White Star Line merged due to the Depression in 1934, and they were building the Queen Mary in a huge government bailout where the British government loaned the two companies a large amount of money to try to maintain their jobs and industry in the midst of the travel slump of the Depression. And it's actually one of those interesting cases where this bailout worked and the government was paid back in full uh, within about 10 years. Uh, nevertheless, they couldn't decide if they were going to use White Star's nomenclature. All White Star ships end in IC, like Titanic or Olympic, and all canard ships were named after ancient Roman provinces, and they ended in IA, like Mauritania or Lusitania. So they were unsure of, how, of which one to pick. So they decided to name her after Queen uh, Britain's most famous queen, Victoria, and they knew they would need palace permission for this. So the chairman of the new Cunard White Star Line called the palace and spoke with the king and said, we'd like to name the ship after England's most famous queen. And the king paused and said, gee, my wife will be delighted, I'll tell her tonight.
3: That sounds exactly like something George V would do.
1: So they ended up having to name it Queen Mary. Now I don't know if that story is true or not, but it's a great story nonetheless.
3: I do you know what? I will not be a bit sorry if we end up calling our pub the uh, RMS Queen Mary. Um, I just well, I just I think it's a great argument. Holmes, you got any questions on the uh, Queen Mary or?
9: One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1 dot com. that's o s e a malibu code glow
3: i've I've got one
6: and, and it was a very very persuasive argument i have to say um not to denigrate the arguments anyone else has made either but again it's all sort of similar to the um question I asked about the oceanic, which is presumably it was also used um to transport you know immigrants to and from, you know,
1: uh, their home to their, n- their new world and all that. She did. She carried first, second and third class. Of course, she was one of the well top three most important ships in the world. So you can figure first class was kind of akin to the Concorde in price. It was wildly expensive. A five-day crossing could cost the equivalent of buying a new car, uh, But she also did carry second and third class, and she was particularly well known for the luxury of her second class. In 1936, when she came into service, they air conditioned all of the first class public rooms, which was very cutting edge, but they also air conditioned the second class dining room from the start. So her second class accommodations were far above that of her competition. Uh, And as a result, she ended up becoming one of the most profitable ships Uh, of all time, not the most profitable, but certainly during the depression, she did very well. And particularly her Art Deco interiors are maybe not quite as famous as Normandy's because all of Normandy's Art Deco interiors were designed by the artists who created the Art Deco movement, but certainly they're the the second best. (laughs) Uh, Inga's fist
3: bumping down there in Sydney at the mention of Art Deco. Um, She's got another drink, I'm so proud of her. got but you two <laughs> go on finish if you have a question
6: you know that's fair enough i mean you know you've been to france with me a number of times when we've gone to battlefields and we um we've traveled in the club lounge on pno we're, we're aware of the <laughs> niceties of naval
1: travel
2: <laughs> <laughs> you just travel. might
6: on the, there's, there's you... two ships on the, uh, the P&O have where they have a row of writing desks, which always confuses me a little bit considering the crossing takes an hour and 20 minutes <laughs>
3: Do you know what, you jest, but I took Brian Brian in one of those lounges last year, didn't I? Um, So I have shown him the wonders of the 15 quid upgrade on the uh, cross-channel ferry. Um, just to finish with the ocean liner guys, uh, Inga <laughs> and Brian. I just uh, I'm so sad. Eric sorder was going to join us as well. He uh, he is like the only person you should ever talk to about RMS Lusitania. Um, he <laughs> he owns the ship's whistle, and Brian tested it with the Hoover. I shit you not, Brian. Tell this story.
1: <laughs> yeah, it, it worked. Uh, we we you know, we have a Electrolux vacuum cleaner. Uh, that has an attachment where it will blow air out as well as suck air in. And I and one day I said, you know, I wonder if this whistle will still sound. So we hooked it to that attachment and it does actually <laughs> still work. It's five feet tall and solid brass and covered in barnacles, but it still sounds.
3: Okay, so I'm devastated Eric couldn't join us because he had to go to work um annoyingly uh, but he did actually leave me just with a brief written argument which you guys say yay or nay but he says for design and beauty it's the Andrea Doria for profitability it's the QE2 for technical advancement it's the Lusitania but I listened to him and Brian have a right old ding dong about whether uh, they, they, they got into water based air conditioning and the Normandy and I lost interest um, but his heart, his heart is also with the Queen Mary so uh, ultimately Eric went for the Queen Mary too any more ocean liners to stick in before we move on, guys? No,
5: but Brian had me at Hitler.
1: (laughs) (laughs) He really wanted it. It it would have been a huge propaganda uh, win. Not to mention a terrible tragedy. There's no way to get 16,000 people into the lifeboat in in an emergency situation like that. Although the Mary has the record for 16,500 or some odd Mim- um people on board. But I do think that the latest Royal Caribbean ships are going to try to put that to the test with their six and seven thousand passengers. They keep getting yeah. bigger and bigger.
3: If they can ever convince anyone to get on a cruise ship and cough on each other again. Um right, okay. We're I'm gonna move on now. Uh, before we hit military, I just well, we we are hitting military now because this is a military ship. Um I I'm gonna fangirl now because we have with us, we have Chris Dobbs with us who is um a maritime archaeologist and head of interpretation at the Mary Rose. Not only does he get to play with the Mary Rose every day for a living, but his his entire professional life has has tied in with her. Um, Chris, you've been in from the start. You you you've got a you before we came on air. You told us you were there when they bought her up, weren't you?
0: Yeah. So that was in um, October of 1982, and I was uh, still underwater when the ship left the seabed and hit the surface. So I was filling up airbags to help with cushioning and to help with the lift. Um, so yeah, I saw it ri- rise from the seabed.
3: And didn't so Holmes, you, you had a question earlier, didn't you, do repeat it, cause it was brilliant because you remember the Mary Rose got You actually looked a little bit excited when you heard that Chris was here.
6: I, I did, despite my incredible lack of um, my incredible ignorance on the whole subject. I, I can remember. Um, I think as an eight-year-old, being rushed into the school hall, and we had to watch it on those tellys that had big cases around them. And I was saying to Chris earlier that um, we all remember watching as eight-year-olds in the Midlands with no knowledge of uh, maritime archaeology, but we all remembered that bit when the lifting cradle, something gave on it and it crushed down a little bit. And I remember like 208-year-olds looking at each other thinking, well, that can't be good.
3: <laughs> How did that feel at the time, Chris?
0: Well, we, I was actually being interviewed live on the BBC when it happened um, and I was gobsmacked. But luckily, before you could tell I was gobsmacked, they cut to the main uh, producer, and uh, the main uh, person who was presenting to say what had uh, what had happened, but we were later congratulated for for making it much more exciting because it had been a bit like watching paint dry. But the great th- one, great thing about the Mary Rose is how everybody remembers that moment. People remember the raising of the Mary Rose, just like they perhaps remember the first men on the moon, or Kennedy being assassinated, or Lady Di dying, or the Twin Towers. Um, Collapsing, so, or so Beckham it's, it's getting one of those seminal moments for that
3: uh, kick on Simeone in the World <laughs> Cup.
0: <laughs> yeah, or winning the World Cup in the yeah. '66. Yeah, but, but, but there, are these, there are these events that people remember, and I think that's incredible that so many people remember it coming
3: up. But Chris, yes, what,
0: what, year was it, what year was it raised? 1982,
8: October 82.
3: Yeah. So Chris unsurprisingly, if you come on now and say that you're going to argue for like, I don't know, the dreadnought, I will laugh my head off, but I don't think you are, are you? Tell us, what is the greatest ship ever built?
0: Well, the greatest ship ever built is unquestionably the Mary Rose. I mean, it was just, it, it's, it's so important, I think, for so many different reasons. It's, it's, it's important for the history period, for, you know, what we've learned about naval architecture, but how it's contributed to conservation methods, to maritime archaeology to a change in divers attitude towards uh, history under the sea. Um, but I think, I mean, particularly it's, it's from the time of a really important King in our history. You know, Henry VIII was a really important King and he came to the throne in 1509 and in 1510 he signed the warrant to build the Mary Rose. And it was a really successful warship for 34 years. None of these other ships you've talked about so far, were actually in service for 34 years. Um, And this was 510 years ago. Um, I mean, absolutely astonished. And we heard that sort of poetry earlier about the Queen Mary, but uh, soon after it was uh, its first voyage, in fact, in about 1513, the Henry VIII made his admirals uh, race their ships off Dover. And the Mary Rose always won these races. And the Admiral wrote to Henry VIII and said, she is the flower I trow of all the ships that ever sailed. So I think she's the flower of all the ships that ever sailed, even nowadays.
3: I can your association with her is so long and so involved Um we did, we did chat before we came on air but between us and uh, you, you have to tell us, you were asked um, what was the, what's your favourite artefact because obviously you, you are the person that's put together the museum and like so not only did you help bring her up but then you helped spray her, I mean that's how I first remember her being sprayed with lipstick chemicals um, for preservation and then you dried her out and, and now you've seen her all the way through to this final exhibition, what is your favourite artefact that's come off the Mary Rose?
0: Well, there are so many great artefacts. I mean, we've got unique artefacts like still shawms, which is a type of oboe, which nobody had ever ever seen before. But we've got the ends of shoelaces. We've got shoes that have been worn through. We've got people, we've got sundials. The pocket sundial was like the eye watch of the time. It was a sundial that you put in your pocket and opened up like an iWatch. Um, we've got all those, you know, all the fantastical objects But also what I particularly like are what I call the extraordinarily ordinary objects. Um, So I was just saying my my favorite is probably a really, really ordinary shovel. But it's a lovely wooden shovel, but it's carved out of one piece of wood. So the blade and the shaft and the handle are all out of one bit of cleft wood. Cleft wood means it's been split out of a tree so that the grain runs exactly up the um the shaft and into the blade and into the handle so it's really really strong but i particularly like this object because i was uh, just on one of my over a thousand dives and i saw the handle of this and was able to excavate the whole thing in one dive out of the wonderful silt it was all buried in and before i brought it up you know having measured it in and done all the archaeological things i just was kneeling on the seabed and I held this up in my arms and I just thought the last person that touched this was a Tudor sailor. And it's just to to have that sort of feeling when you're underwater, you know, on a shipwreck um, it was just uh, it's, it's the only object that did that for me. I suppose once you've had that moment, once you can't replicate it again on another object, but you know, the, the idea that no one had touched this for 437 years was just, was just, Amazing, really
3: it's weird like how you can never choose what object does that to you I know Alina I'm going to mention Auschwitz here but the one you know everybody talks about the when you go around the museum the the thing at Auschwitz which I just cannot ever get over is the cheese grater the fact that everybody packed their whole worldly belongings into their suitcases that all got taken off of them but someone before they got dragged out of their house and into oblivion thought oh I might need my cheese grater and it just blows my mind and not even in a sarcastic ridiculous way for some reason that was the object that grabbed, Mm. grabbed me so it's not something conscious is it at
10: all i I
6: always say and obviously uh, Auschwitz is a far more emotive um, area than what i'm just about to talk about but you know you know when we go to the somme and eve and we occasionally go over fields after they've been plowed and you you find a shrapnel ball or something like that in a field and you know the last person that touched that was the you know probably the lady in the munitions factory that loaded it into the shell or the person who touched it after that was the artillery guy who put it into the into the um, gun that was going to be fired. And that stuff is quite powerful when you break it down and think about it like
3: that. It, yeah, Alina, so, I mean,
0: one. to me, it's, it's these extraordinarily ordinary objects. And that's, what's so great about the Mary Rose museum. And that reflects on the ship is that we've got a cross section of the whole of society. So you go to other museums and historic houses, and you usually see stuff that belonged to the rich, uh, you know, the, the paintings and the, porcelain and the statues but on the May Rose you have these things that belong to ordinary people even a um, even a rosary uh, a rosary you know some, something that someone said their prayers with and yet henry viii had, had banished these so so uh, just like that cheese grater it's, it's because the the collection was created at one moment in time it's like pompeii or herculaneum we would never have known that all these objects were used in one place at one time. But anyway, uh, but, but the, most, I mean, the question was, what's the most important ship? And, you know, she was a really revolutionary warship. You know, she was one of the first to have gun ports and many, many design features in her that weren't then used again for another two or three hundred years, which were great design features. So there are so many things that make her so important.
3: I'm watching Alina's face on the video feed and I can read her mind. You've just connected this shit with Pompeii and she's sold. She's not changing her mind now. Look at her. (laughs) Look at her face. She's a (laughs) happy. Alina, have you got any questions about the Mary Rose? Well, I mean, it was like
0: Pompeii and it was covered not in ash, but in silt. Mm. You know, this silt preserved her.
3: I, just, I would absolutely love to have you on for one of our proper serious, in, well, semi-serious interviews to talk to you about your life with the Mary Rose because I, I could just keep you on here all night but uh, all the other people on the feed would probably kill me but I would just love to have you on here to, to talk properly about the Mary Rose because she is she's the first thing that ever got me in, interested in history. You, you were saying as well that you um, were with Prince Charles on the dives weren't you?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, he was, he was great. He'd learnt to dive in the Navy and he'd actually studied archeology span at university. Um, and he was a great supporter. Um, and it was just a privilege to have been with him really.
3: Holmes, you got any more questions about the Mary Rose?
6: I I have, I mean, obviously I I don't have that. My, my Tudor knowledge is massively lacking. I didn't even do it for GCSE or A-levels, but from the, the odd thing that I have picked up from, um, BBC history documentaries, shall we say, because I don't tend to watch history documentaries on any other channels. Um, Wasn't the Mary Rose quite badly designed, though? Wasn't the the, um, gun walls or the bits where the guns come out, if I phrase that incorrectly, too low down? And didn't it sink because it turned too sharply, which meant all the water came in at that particular level?
1: Well, the, the, the
0: difficulty with myths and legends like that is there is some truth in it, but others is greatly exaggerated. But, you know, she was a, um, she was a serving warship for 34 years. I mean, as I was saying, that's longer than any of these other uh, great ships that are being proposed in tonight's debate. Um, so she can't have been that badly designed, but I think the trouble is that everyone wants to blame other people, you know, when she sinks, they want to blame the sinking on, on someone else. Um, but I, I think the other trouble, I, I, it's a bit difficult to say this amongst a, a group of historians, but a lot of history is written by people who, you know, who weren't there and who yeah. have history a point to make. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. So um, so I think it's really important to, to, to get the facts, to go back to eyewitnesses. And particularly one eyewitness was a survivor. And he said something like um, that um, it was a calm day and they had fired the guns on one side, and were turning to fire the guns on the other side, and there was a gust of wind, and she had failed to close the gun ports. So there is a bit of human error there, You know, it's a bit like a of free enterprise, but there probably is a combination of uh, factors. Um, you know, my view about great calamities like that, it's there's never one thing that goes wrong, it's a whole series of unfortunate events. Um, And so, yeah, I don't think it was a bad design. Um, It was extremely successful for 34 years. Um, So that's why I think it can still qualify as uh, the greatest ship ever built. I
6: I, I suppose the the other question I I would have, you know, you've just mentioned that it was the, the greatest ship for 34 years, but were there not equivalents of it around? Was there only one done in 34 years? There weren't. They didn't think that, you know, after 34 years, this ship's great. Well, We'll design one exactly the same.
0: Um, Yeah, there were other ships at the time, but none of them that had such a a history and association with Henry VIII. So he ordered it just after he came to the throne and it served him for 34 years and he died just, just after it, two years after it sank. Um, So she was, she was flagship of his fleet for quite a while, but then a larger ship was actually built later called the Henry Grassadieu but I still don't think that would uh, surpass the Mary Rose as being the greatest ship that ever sailed.
3: Chris, thanks so much. Um, I'm, uh, I'm starting to waver on Dreadnought now. Um, I, I'm gonna get to our last two um, experts. I Regrettably, we're gonna fast forward past HMS Victory and um, as someone also put forward HMS Warrior as well, um, and move into much more recent um, events because I have with me, um, Jonathan Saunders, who, if he was not a massively knowledgeable historian, First and Second World War, um, in multiple, like air, sea, land, everything, I would have him on here just because he'd argue with a brick that it wasn't a brick. <laughs> he is the most argumentative <laughs> bugger I've ever met in my life. I mean, we have, we've had pub debates and stormed away from each other, haven't we, in the middle of France? I mean, you, you are the king of making an argument um even though i frequently want to punch you during the argument so you you tell us where have you gone i really like your choices you've gone left field go for it
10: okay well thanks alex um, um i'm not sure if i'm the most argumentative uh, person certainly when i'm not on <laughs> firm ground um but um yeah i mean liners we, we, we we've, we've heard about liners and yeah you know, they're, they're very pretty and uh, they—they also—they've—they given the important service um, in, in in times of um, of um, uh, conflict. But really, um, if you if you want um, to think about what is the best ship, it, it really ha- it has to be a, a military vessel. And if you think about big ships. Um, It it was probably the Germans that that have built the most aesthetically um, pleasing ships. Um, The ships with the best lines, um, also with uh, um, lots of uh, um, technologically um, uh, pleasing aspects, big guns and so forth. Um, So I thought, rather than go big ship, um, go um, small boat, really. So I was going to put forward uh, the MTB, the Motor Torpedo Boat. Now, um, why, why would I put, put forward a motor torpedo boat? Um, basically, because it packed the biggest punch, probably per square inch, of uh, any vessel um, whilst it was in service. Um, it, it, it's a, a craft that was 70 foot long. It was highly manoeuvrable, um, extremely fast, uh, top speed around 40 knots, and just fantastic armament. It had um, two torpedo tubes, uh, a 20 millimetre Oelekin. It would have at least um, two Vickers machine guns, possibly three. And uh, on the later models, they also had um, a six pounder forward. Um, So it really packed a huge, huge punch. This was truly um, a great little boat of of war. It also served in um, every theatre. Uh, And um, if if the worst possible thing happened, it it had a crew of no more than um, 13 um, um, officers and um, matlows. So losses were manageable if if the boat was lost, if if, if that's the right um, expression. And of course, its greatest moment was probably the St. Nazaire Raid which is known as the greatest raid of all. So what I like to do is put forward the motor torpedo boat as a, as a, a, a great little ship that is hugely underrated. Um, also, I, um, I probably owe it to my, um, to my dad's cousin, um, who I knew um, in his later years. and He, he served on motor launches, which were which similar to, uh, to the motor torpedo boat. He uh, he served out in um, in, in Burma, uh, off the uh, Burmese coast, ML 854. And he told me this story once about um, um, they went up um river and they had a firefight with uh, um, a, a Japanese uh, um, uh, um, a, a gun emplacement. And he he said he he was a radar operator, but. Um, he used to man the Orlican or um, one of the vicars um, during a fu- uh, the firefights so of which they they had quite a few, and um, to to fire the the, the gun, you know, he he sort of assumed a position, sort of um, um, a firm standing position. His, his legs probably eighteen inches apart, and he told me one day about this um, uh, twenty twenty millimeter shell that, that that went between his legs and. Um, embedded itself uh, in in the um in in the side of the ship, and I thought that's an absolutely fantastic story, but of course you yeah, know it couldn't possibly be be true and then um years later, there was a couple of books um that uh, were on speed bid at at the time and they they'd been written by the Burmese sorry Burma Star association, and one of them um, um in its contents page. Uh, um, it said that it covered a story about ML 854. So I thought, right, I've got to have this. So um, um, I bid a stupid amount of money, bought it. Sure enough, ML 854 is covered. There's a picture of um, of dad's cousin in there. And the story is written by, um, uh, I think it was the skipper who was a South African. He tells, tells a story about one day when they went up river and, um, the chap was uh, well, One of his uh, crew was um, uh, 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 manning the machine gun, and his twenty millimeter shell went went uh, between his legs and embedded itself in the um, in, in the side of the boat. So, so I thought I probably owe it to um, to uh, Charlie Newman to uh, put forward the small boats.
3: I like that. If you but if you did have to go um, for a big boat, which big boat would you go for?
10: Well, it'd it have, um, it have to be German, and it would probably um, be uh, the Bismarck, where I think the Tirpitz was a slightly better specification. Um, but I, I, I think the Bismarck is aesthetically the most beautiful ship, that's, uh, or warship, that's um, um, ever been built of that iconic style. Obviously, today's ships are, um, are of a much different style. Um, uh, 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 design.
3: Awesome. Do you know what? Do you know what makes your arguments even more awesome, John? The fact that I rang you fifteen minutes before we started this conference call, and not only have you put those arguments together, um, you you picked your ships and put those arguments together. So thank you so much. Um, you you've managed it. I would never have accepted that challenge, and I never would have sounded as competent as you have. I think Alina's waving her hand because she's here in World War Two now, so she's back. <laughs>
5: I know, I am back, but I'm, I'm just interested. Is this a British boat? Like, where was it built, created? Yeah, Can you yeah, tell me a bit more about that?
10: Well, in fact, now I've got to disappoint you because there, there's a link to World War I because um, it, it, it was actually, it was an interwar. Oh, boo. <laughs> mm, boo. It was an boo. Inter, it was an interwar boat, um, but it was um, uh, originally um, uh, produced for air-sea rescue and uh, there was a a chap um, who um, worked diligently on um, air-sea rescue boats. Um, I can't remember what name he was going under in the RAF um, but during the first world war he was known as T.E. Lawrence. (laughs) Uh, Aircraftman Shaw. That's it, Aircraftman. Sure, thank you. He he was also in the tank regiment. I can't remember what name. Um, he went in to the tank regiment. I think he had three. Um,
3: you uh, stump me there or, or, as well. Two, two names. <laughs> Sorry, you stumped me there as well. And I gave a talk on him last month. I'm
10: I'm sure there was another name that he used, but uh, I, I can't I can't recall.
3: Holmes, you got any questions?
6: And it sort of seems a bit crass to say, but, but did any of the the sort of commanders or, or, or whatever the rec- correct terminology is the MTB. Did any of them win VCs in that particular raid? Uh,
10: there were five VCs in the St. air raid. Um, um, no, there wasn't, but there is, there is, in fact, there is a great story. It's a unique story uh, on uh, one of the MTBs. Um, there, was, there was a VC to uh, a guy called Durrant um, I believe what uh, was his name. Durrant was um, a royal engineer. Um, uh, that, that was his unit. And he uh, was uh, manning one of the guns. Uh, um, he um, uh, continued to man his gun despite several um, 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 injuries that, that he sustained. And he, he finally died of his wounds. Now, his, his VC is unique because um, it was awarded to um, someone serving in the army um, in a naval action, but his citation actually came from uh, a German officer, um, uh, Leutnant Paul, I believe his name was. And um, he commanded um, a torpedo boat destroyer called the Jaguar, if I remember rightly. And uh, this um, um, had a gun action with um, Durrant's uh, M- MTB, um, And um, late, later on, um, after the uh, uh, raid had finished and certain uh, uh, of the uh, British officers and men had been made prisoners of, of war, um, Lieutenant Paul um, seats out uh, um, um, some of the officers uh, they've been taken um, to a um, hotel as a, as a temporary holding position, um, uh, um, uh, about ten, fifteen, twenty miles from from Saint Nazaire. And um, he told the story of uh, this gunner, and he said, um, "You know, this this man deserved your um, your highest honour, your uh, Victoria Cross." And uh, I believe the the, the man he told the story to was a guy called Colonel Newman, who was um, leading the land forces in in the raid. And when uh, Newman um, um, was freed as a POW in 1945, I I believe that he wrote out a citation for uh, Durham's uh, uh, VC on on the basis of um, Paul's recommendation. So a a highly unique uh, Victoria Cross.
3: Awesome. Okay, we have one last. Contributor who has been patiently sat there since this began, um, waiting to argue his case. He is Chris Sams, and he is a naval historian. Um, and he has done a book. He actually done an air book as well on World War Two, but he's done a book about uh, raiders in World War One. And he's here to make his case for uh, yet another ship that I don't think anyone would expect. Our last suggestion, and I don't think any of us are anticipating this being on the list. So, Chris, uh, welcome and go.
11: Hi yeah. Uh, um, yeah, I mean I, I was thinking about uh First World War uh German naval ships. I mean everyone would argue technically Dreadnought was a fantastic ship, but uh she didn't really do much on her own. Um I was tempted by Dresden, which was the uh hide and seek con- um conf- uh, winner of nineteen fourteen to fifteen. Uh anyone who's uh you know interested managed to hide from the Royal Navy for quite some time. Um but I'm gonna go with uh the German battlecruiser Goben. Um, which, in herself, is she? She wasn't uh, magnificent. Uh, she was the uh, second um, of her class to be created. Uh, she was uh, roughly uh, comparable to the indefatigable class. Um, with a top speed of about 25.5 knots, uh, 10 times... um, I'm going to use British measurements rather than German measurements because, you know, uh, 11 inches, uh, 10, 11-inch guns, uh, 12, uh, 5.4-inch guns, and uh, 12, 3.5-inch guns with very comparable armor. But um, in herself, she wasn't remarkable. But... She was the first ship to open fire during the First World War. She might even be the first uh, thing to open fire during the First World War, uh, in that she attacked the French ports of um, the French port of Bonn and um, in uh, North Africa. But she had a massive effect on world history, in that um, not only did she cost uh, two Royal Navy admirals their jobs because they failed to intercept her. Um, but she also costed uh, another admiral her his life um, at the Battle of Coronel. Um, I probably should talk about that first really uh, yeah the um, uh, Gobin was situated in the Mediterranean as uh, part of the Mittelmeergeschwader, and um, they they didn 't know quite what to do, so they, they raided the uh, uh, her and the Breslau, which was a light cruiser in the same squadron uh, attacked uh, the French ports of Bonn. Uh, in North Africa, they were tempted to attack uh, French convoys of North African troops to France, but uh, obviously the defenses would be quite great. But they managed to escape the uh, um, Admiral Milne's battle cruisers who who firmly believed that the Germans would turn west again and so cruised at like 12 knots. Um, Admiral Trowbridge, who was at the mouth of the Adriatic, supposedly watching the Austrian fleet, was given very vague orders by the Admiralty as to you shouldn't engage a superior force. Well, Trowbridge thought about it and thought, well, you know, Goben, she's a battle cruiser, she'd probably sink most of my fleet before we get anywhere near her, and then decided that the Austrian fleet was something that he should really be paying more attention to. So turned north and ignored the German ship. Uh, Admiral Sushan on the um, Goben um, was following orders from uh, Berlin and uh, changed course for Constantinople and Turkey. Um, Milne never commanded again. Trowbridge was court-martialed but found uh, innocent. Uh, Admiral Souchon led his German cruiser, uh, well, battle cruiser and light cruiser to Constantinople where they handed themselves over to the Ottomans and then um, they went on the famous Black Sea Raid, I say famous, where they um, attacked Sevastopol, which then caused Russia to declare war on Turkey, which dragged Turkey into the First World War. Um, Gobin's military career during the First World War is nothing uh, that, you know, I I read through it today, just double check and um, make sure I didn't sound like an idiot. Um, But um, there's nothing really fantastic about its military career, but the raid on Sevastopol dragged... Um, Turkey into the First World War. Turkey then lost the First World War, which then led to um, the Ottoman Empire being broken up and shared up, shared up between Britain and the French, which has destabilized the Middle East for, for well, since 1918 <laughs> onwards. And uh, we're still facing the repercussions now. And uh, going back to military services like the Mary Rose, that's all well and good, but the um, you know the Goban was was wasn't scrapped until the 1970s. She was built. In, she was first launched in 1911. So she had 60 years military service. And even though her military service wasn't particularly great, and she didn't really um, sink, it well she didn't sink anyone particularly. Um, she did have. She was in service for 60 years and was the flagship of the Turkish Navy for for quite some time. I mean, you could argue that destabilisation of the Middle East caused two, at least two Gulf wars. Um, et and um, the, the decision of one German Admiral whether to turn north for Austria, west for the uh, open Atlantic and cause, have a raiding career, or turn east to Constantinople, Constantinople and follow her orders, and then literally force the Turkish into war, has had a massive repercussion on the world we have today.
3: Okay, thank you so much for your contribution. I just, I'm just i going to go briefly round the room or the virtual room because um, none of us are breaking the law um, and ask if you couldn't have your ship or a ship you've mentioned, what ship would you go for? So Chris, let's start with you, Chris Sams.
11: Um, oh, I don't know. I, I quite like Titanic, um, but I... Uh, Mainly because I, I I really love the movie. <laughs> <laughs>
10: Chris Dobbs, um, I,
11: I, 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 oh go on. I I probably go for the Dresden, the the nineteen fourteen to fifteen hide and seek champion of the South Adla- South Pacific and Atlantic.
3: <laughs> Excellent, Chris Dobbs. If uh, it's going to be sacrilege for you, but if you cannot have the Mary Rose, which which one of the ships mentioned tonight would be yours?
0: Uh, is it worth living if you can't have the Mary Rose? It's questionable. Uh, no, the <laughs> The arguments for Queen Mary were very good indeed, but, you know, it is a modern ship. And um, so I think the May Rose gets it because, uh, you know, she was absolutely revolutionary, 34 years in service, and she still has great relevance to people today through the museum.
3: Okay, John Saunders, if you can't have one of yours.
10: Um, Wow, that's... um um uh really difficult if um oh it might be the um queen mary queen mary
3: inga
2: i'm so torn because the mary rose story is so compelling um from you know revolutionizing maritime archaeology um unfortunately though i am an art go buff <laughs> and <laughs> <laughs> I have to go the queen mary like i said she a spe- she always had a special place in my heart. And I wonder if we've got a bias here because the Queen Mary is still extant, um, yeah. as is the Mary Rose. But, I mean, you can go to the Queen Mary and there are still people who sailed on her. Um, yeah, I, I, I think there's a survival bias. Um, you know, there are other great vessels that unfortunately didn't make the final cut because we don't still have them like we do the Mary Rose and the Queen Mary. But um, if you were to put a knife to my throat, I'm going Queen Mary.
1: Okay. direct connection to you your mother.
3: Ah, uh, this is true. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, my bias. Yeah. <laughs> and Brian, if you can't have one of your ocean liners, you're just going to side with Inga, aren't you?
1: <laughs> I've been with Mary Rose, and, and she is really, really, really compelling. But all of my life, I've been an ocean liner guy. So of the ones mentioned here, the Oceanic is was the, many people have called her the most important British ship of the 19th century
3: okay Uh, but
1: if I had to pick uh, I'd probably pick the Mary Rose
3: okay so our two judges I know they've been uh, in Conflab and I've seen a little bit of it I don't think they're too far away from you guys you've got it narrowed down to two haven't you
6: yeah I think we're I think Alina jump in at any point if you disagree but I think we're we're between Queen Mary and Mary Rose
3: (laughs) <laughs> um, I just say that Chris Sams is shaking his head in absolute disgust on, on his webcam
6: Honourable we- mentions for everything else it seems quite harsh on the USS Enterprise and that's probably down to our own ignorance and reluctance to, ex- to entertain the subject the Titanic thing is very well known and I get the arguments that made Inga made some brilliant arguments about the Oceanic but I think the same arguments um, can also be applied to the Queen Mary, unfortunately. Um, I mean, the Oceanic was winning in my book until uh, James had done his bit on the Queen Mary. Um...
5: Me too, unfortunately. Inga, I'm really sorry. I really feel really bad because it should be like Lady Power. Like, come on. But I, I'm sorry. I feel bad you
3: forgiven, you forgiven. <laughs> <laughs> you can buy her a glass of champagne when she's next in London and she'll <laughs> forgive you. Perfect. Or you can send dog me, treats to Bertie. In lockdown, yep.
6: for me personally, the the, the story of the the ML uh, boat was intriguing. In many ways, was more you know, more people got the opportunity to pilot that, if that's the right expression, and that's more war related. But unfortunately, that doesn't that doesn't seem to be floating my boat tonight. <laughs> um,
5: <laughs>
6: excuse the pun. Um, um, the Mary Rose thing was was really interesting, and in many ways, it's a privilege to speak to Chris because obviously I was there as a 10-year-old watching him speak on camera in my school hall and that's really compelling. The only the difficulty I'm having between distinguishing between the two and Alina, you may want to jump in after I finish speaking, is that if we're looking at this for the best best ship and I'm looking from an international perspective most positive, I would probably go for... The Queen Mary, the only reason I wouldn't go for the Mary Rose is it's quite US-centric. I'm sorry, UK-centric, and um, it did sink, after all. I got <laughs> like the arguments about the dreadnought at the end. I, I think the positivity from all the liners and the transporting immigrants and everyone else around the world, I think there's a, a, um, a better case for positivity there. That's what uh, I'm thinking.
3: It's funny, isn't it, that the two military historian judges... Uh, can I just say as well that Holmes is a solicitor and he has absolutely loved being a judge a little bit too much. He's been sitting there and you can see him vaping away and making his notes and stuff. You've liked ruling this courtroom of sorts, haven't you? But it's interesting that wow. the two military historians doing the judging have gone towards the ocean liners. But Alina, you too. you two, you've got to make a call. What's the pub going to be called?
5: I don't know I'm loving the Queen Mary for me it's a great ship but the Mary Rose kind of it's getting my vote because I studied archaeology at uni and I am a closet archaeologist as well not just a classicist and it's revolutionized archaeology and it's I don't know that's what's doing it for me the whole marine archaeology thing.
3: I mean at this rate we're gonna to have to do Holmes what we did to pick our last Canadian for the songbook, which is put a picture of each on your kitchen floor and let your fat ginger cat sit on one and then we pick that one. <laughs>
1: There's no oh, way Lord. getting up that next time of night. <laughs> I, I mean I think I don't want to get <laughs> <skip> the argument, <laughs> but the Mary Rose, in my opinion, is a better pub name. <laughs>
3: <Yes>. <laughs> <Did you laughs> say, is that gonna win? Is that what's gonna swing what it? We do?
5: My, my, I've got a better idea. We'll post this and then what we do is we we'll put a poll up and we let the people decide. That's a really Queen Mary good and idea. And Mary Rose. Yeah, as
3: far as I'm concerned, it is a dead heat between Chris Dobbs and Brian Hawley. Um, God, I, I want both of them, um, but the Mary Rose Queen Mary is a really long pub name that would be really hard to pronounce <laughs> after you've had a few. Uh, so, I don't know, what do you think? We Queen we, we we Mary tomorrow. Mary Rose? Yeah, the Merry, Merry Rose. Yeah, that, the Merry, Merry Rose. Yeah, maybe. We'll put that as a third option on the poll. We'll put the long one as an option on the poll. But so we'll air this at seven o'clock tomorrow night and we'll, we'll let democracy decide. Does that sound fair? I think so. Everyone? Yeah, I'm agreed apart from all yeah, apart from the other guys who's still sitting there shaking his head in absolute <laughs> de- and, and John as well God love them they waited all the way to the end to make their arguments and they've been done by pretty ocean liners and I think they're, uh, they're going to go into their own virtual pub in a minute and drown their sorrows but guys thank you so much for joining us for this debate it really has been international it really has been interesting and I love Inga's point that actually the two ships that came out on top are the ones that we can still physically go and look at um which was really interesting but thanks so much for joining us down the pub um we'll stick this out tomorrow and we'll see where where we decide to go. Thanks very much. Good night.
0: Yeah,
1: good night, Take good time. call Bye. Bye.